Support for Criminal comes from BetterHelp Online Therapy. If I had an extra hour each day, I might spend it just being still and reading. No phone anywhere in sight. Figuring out what feels good isn't always easy. Therapy can help you suss out what is most important and make the time for it. And BetterHelp can make that entire process convenient and painless. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist in no time at all. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash criminal today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash criminal. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. This episode contains references to suicide. Please use discretion. There is a famous bar in Juarez, where in 1957, blues players like Long John Hunter and Little Joe Washington began performing. The lobby, the legendary lobby, it was a bar just across the bridge in Juarez, Mexico. At the lobby, the music didn't stop until the sun came up. Long John Hunter once said it was a party from 8 o'clock till please go home in the morning. He was famous for hanging from the ceiling rafters with one hand and playing guitar with the other. Everybody went to the lobby. I mean, and and in those days, you just walk across the bridge. You didn't have to talk to anybody or anything. So it was easy for the young guys to to go over there. And there weren't really any venues to hear that kind of music in El Paso. So we all went over there. Etta James reportedly went to the lobby to see Long John Hunter, So did James Brown and Buddy Holly. And there was a high school student from El Paso who was a regular there. He wanted to be a rock star more than anything. He could play every instrument. People called him a prodigy. His name was Bobby Fuller. Oh, well, you know, he was an ambitious guy. And his parents backed him all the way, so he had everything he wanted. He had his hot rod and his drums and and the nice clothes and... uh, And it showed, you know, and he had an ego to go along with it. But uh, we all knew that someday Bobby wanted to be a rock star. This is Dalton Powell. I live in Texas, and I've been a drummer most of my life. And when did you first hear Bobby Fuller's music? First time I ever heard Bobby was at a football game at, at my high school. Uh, at halftime, the marching bands all came out. And uh, at halftime, they rolled a platform out onto the field with a set of drums on it. And Bobby came out and did a drum solo with the, with the marching bands. And that was the first time I ever saw him play, so we knew he could play drums. Dalton Powell had a band of his own and asked Bobby Fuller to play with him. But uh, we always knew that Bobby, you know, he had higher aspirations. He wanted to play guitar and write and sing and be a rock star. So that's how I got hooked up with Bobby. He was my drummer before I was his. Dalton Powell became the drummer for the band that would become the Bobby Fuller Four. 
there were many iterations of the band, but in the early days, and again at the end, it was Dalton, Bobby, a guitar player named Jim Reese, and Bobby's younger brother, Randall Fuller. Bobby and Randall Fuller's parents, Lorraine and Lawson Fuller, did everything they possibly could to support their son's music ambitions. They were a slightly older couple, and they were very supportive parents. This is Miriam Linna. She's been researching Bobby Fuller for decades. She's also a musician. She was a founding member of the punk band The Cramps, and she runs Norton Records. The Fullers lived on Album Avenue in El Paso, and Bobby created what was by all accounts a very impressive recording studio inside the house. His mother said there were cables and wires all over. He was really into that. He was really uh, technically, I believe, a genius as well with engineering and so on. And yes, I was at that house and Mrs. Fuller showed me the cutout window in the wall behind a painting in the den that was a window that, that looked right into the little garage compartment that two people could barely stand in that was uh, the engineer booth. They would set up, move the furniture aside in the den. They'd set up there and through the glass uh, they had the setup to be able to record. So this was really, um, really pretty far out at the time uh, for anybody to do. And nobody's parents. I mean, I grew up, you know, years later, and it was like, turn that racket down. And, you know, it's like rock and roll has got to go. And it, and it feels like this. there was this unusual dedication to mastering this craft. You know, Bobby seemed almost obsessive about figuring out exactly what was possible, studying how to become the best, you know, down to the most minute detail. Absolutely. And not only uh, playing, recording, and writing, but also starting a record label, starting two record labels uh, to be able to issue the music that his group recorded, and also to issue music by other local groups that he thought were strong. He was very generous in that way. He wasn't a person who was totally self-centered and thinking, well, it's all me. He could recognize talent anywhere. And that was really uh, that do-it-yourself kind of an attitude that few people had at that time, and that is um, that I admire so much about Bobby Fuller. Bobby Fuller was obsessed with a fellow Texas musician who was six years older and already a huge star, Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly had been opening for Elvis when Bobby Fuller was 12. One of Bobby Fuller's bandmates, Jim Reese, later said that if Buddy Holly wore one red sock and one blue sock, then Bobby Fuller would too. He figured that the only way to accomplish whatever Buddy Holly had accomplished was to be as much like him as possible, Jim Reese said. By 1957, Buddy Holly had a hit song with That'll Be the Day. And then, in 1959, Buddy Holly was on a small plane with musicians J.P. Richardson and Richie Valens. They'd each had their own hits with Chantilly Lace and La Bamba. Their plane crashed into a snowy field in Iowa, killing all three and the pilot. Buddy Holly's wife was reportedly watching the news, and that's how she learned about her husband's death. She was pregnant and miscarried the next day. The careless handling of the news contributed to a change in the way that authorities disclose information to the media, 
attempting to withhold names until family members have been notified. Bobby Fuller was living with his parents in El Paso, playing live as often as he could. Dalton Powell remembers they did a lot of Buddy Holly covers. Here's Bobby. We had a request to sing Peggy Sue, an old Buddy Holly song from West Texas. Buddy Holly. This is Peggy Sue. Right now, I'm looking at a, a poster from 1962, and he's already declaring himself on the poster. It says, Big Dance, starring Bobby Fuller, rock and roll king of the Southwest, with his internationally famous instrumental group <laughs> at the Bassett Center in El Paso. And, you know, it takes a lot of gumption to be able to, you know, declare yourself the king of the Southwest when you're, a, you know, you're a high school kid. Bobby's mother and father helped him get a bank loan to open his own rock club. He named it Bobby Fuller's Teen Rendezvous. No booze, just chips and soda. They played there a few nights a week, and the other nights they played clubs all over the Southwest. And then, in 1964, Bobby and his bandmates set up in the studio in his parents' living room and recorded a song called I Fought the Law. And the rest is history. Here's that original recording. The song was written by a guy named Sonny Curtis, and it had already been recorded by Buddy Holly's band, The Crickets. But Bobby Fuller's version became a hit. The El Paso Herald Post ran a story in September of 1964 with the headline, England has Beatles, but El Paso has Bobby. Less than two years later, he was dead. And his death has not been resolved. The mystery of what happened to Bobby Fuller has been called the rock and roll version of John F. Kennedy's assassination. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Bobby Fuller and his bandmates signed a deal with a record label called Delphi Records. It was owned by a man named Bob Keane. Bob Keane was, was an aggressive type of record mogul. He saw Bobby's talent right away and put a lot of muscle behind it. He had originally had the great Richie Valens, you know, and Richie, of course, perishing. And having that dashed, I think that Bob probably saw something of the star quality that he saw in Richie Valens. He saw it also in Bobby Fuller. Bob Keane had encouraged Bobby and his bandmates to move to Los Angeles, where he could book them on American Bandstand, 
and other TV variety shows with names like Hullabaloo and Chivaree. Bobby thought it was a good idea. And moved Lock, Stock, and Barrel at that time, and uh, Mrs. Fuller in tow. They drove from El Paso to Los Angeles in Mrs. Fuller's Blue Oldsmobile. Bob Keene got them on the radio in Los Angeles. He booked them at popular clubs. One was called It's Boss. Bob Keene was in charge of everything, and Bobby wasn't used to that. So uh, there are stories that you know Bobby would go into the studio after hours and, and change things after they had been, quote-unquote, finalized by Bob Keene. So uh, Bobby would go in there, and, you know, it might not have caused a big, huge fuss in the studio while Bob was there, but he would go in there after hours and make it right. So, you know, he wasn't a guy who was going to back down on uh, on his own sound. This was music that he wrote, created, played on, and uh, he knew how it was supposed to sound. They re-recorded I Fought the Law for Bob Keene to release, and the song went all the way to number nine on the Billboard charts in March of 1966. In the same week, the Beatles song, Nowhere Man, was at number seven. People tried to suggest that Bobby Fuller was in some way influenced by the Beatles, but he always pushed back on that. He said, you know, I do my own thing. You know, when they talked about British invasion stuff, he said, let them do what they want to do. I'm making Texas music. And he redefined Texas music and and rock and roll uh, coming out of El Paso uh, into California. He definitely fed in uh, a totally new sound. As the band got more famous, it seems like there became increasing tension about Bobby getting a lot of the credit. And, you know, Bobby being wined and dined by the music industry executives and the band members, especially, you know, his brother... Randall saying, what's the deal here? Yeah, that is true. But but Bobby had a way of speaking with people. You, uh, you get the feeling that Bobby was just ready with the answers. He was ready and eager to talk about music and his career and what was happening. And he wasn't afraid of that. Uh, he understood it. Not only did members of the band feel increasingly like Bobby's backup band, They also felt that Bobby was having meetings and making plans without looping them in. You've been in bands. Is this a constant battle? The lead singer gets all the glory. (laughs) I, you know, I don't know if it's a it's a constant battle, but uh, but but yeah, I mean the you know uh, I I mean I I never felt that you know as the lowly drummer. But, you know, with other people, and especially with guitar players and so on like that, yeah, I think that, you know, just observing that, that there might be some tension there because people just know to go to the singer. And yes, it was Bobby, Bobby, Bobby. And there was tension at one point in time, uh, I should say at many points in time, where the group did grouse about the fact, exactly as you said, Why does he get all the attention? Well, they knew why. You know, that's just the way that it is. And uh, and Bobby was like electric in more ways than one. Uh, he, he had an incredible future. Everybody knew that.
Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from NetSuite. I've never worked in media before, and it's really fun to see deals come through, especially when we signed with MKBHD and the Waveform podcast. That was one of my favorite shows on YouTube, and I love that we've partnered with him. I'm Christina Ho Rodriguez, and I am a senior manager of revenue accounting at Vox Media. At Vox, I'm not so siloed in my own revenue accounting department. I'm getting to see the big picture of, of what the company is working on. In my first year, the company went through a really big merger with another media company, and we switched from our old ERP system to NetSuite. We had to integrate NetSuite really fast. It was very user-friendly and right out of the box. Over the last couple months, our team developed a new revenue reporting module that makes our reporting much faster, much more automated. I have a lot of hope with what we can do in the future with NetSuite so that we're able to optimize, make our team a lot more successful, and improve our processes. We're only as good as our best data, and NetSuite allows us to see it all. Discover the power of NetSuite, a leading cloud financial system serving more than 37,000 businesses. Download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com criminal. That's netsuite.com criminal to get your own KPI checklist. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. In 1966, Bobby Fuller was living in an apartment on Sycamore Avenue in Los Angeles with his brother Randall and their mother, and drummer Dalton Powell remembers that things were getting more tense. You know, there was you know, typical friction, you know, in any band. I don't want to play that song, or you're too loud, you know, that kind of stuff. But uh, it started coming apart when our management started deciding what kind of music we should do. And Bobby didn't like that. He wanted to do his music, his way. Bob Keane at the record label was pushing Bobby to innovate. He hired Barry White to produce a song for them called The Magic Touch. And it was a cool song, but it wasn't Bobby at all. And he didn't want to go in that direction. So uh, there was a little friction there. And if he felt that possibly there was another label that could do better, he thought that he would explore that. Was um Morris Levy. Morris Levy is one of the most notorious names in 20th century pop, rock and roll music uh, history. He goes way back, but at the time, and uh, with the element of Bobby Fuller and so on, Morris was really running the rackets. He started as a nightclub owner in New York City and was known for uh, getting his way in various ways and kind of strong-arming musicians and club owners and everybody else in his vicinity. Very talented man, uh, but a much feared man as well. Morris Levy's record label was called Roulette Records. People said it was supported by organized crime, 
and that if you tried to leave, you could get hurt or worse. As one record executive once said, you make a deal with Morse, that's it. You don't go back. Bobby definitely met with Morris Levy, absolutely. Uh, Bob Keane went with him, and uh, Randall was also there. And everybody likes to think, oh, well, if something happened that was awful in music history, blame Morris Levy. I, I'm not of that mind at all, because I, I do admire everything that he did. It's just that he was involved with uh, certain criminal elements, and that's the music business. In Los Angeles, in New York, in Chicago, everywhere, uh, there was always someone who was on the take and on the make, and they could see talent, and they they wanted it. Uh, labels were constantly on the move trying to find the next big stars, and as many of those next big stars as they could. The curious thing with Bobby Fuller and with Morris Levy's label, which was Roulette, and I don't mind saying this because it's factual, is that in the discography, in the listing of songs that are assigned a catalog number and are released by date, every label has them. And there is a, a blank space where the Bobby Fuller release, I believe, was meant to be. So the empty spots in the catalogs are perhaps proof that Bobby was making a deal with Morris Levy. No, no, not that Bobby was, no. Uh, I I think that that was uh, most likely being done by uh, Bob Keane. Bobby's contract with Bob Keane was reportedly coming to an end. So it's unclear whether, if Bob Keane was making a deal at all, he was making it in good faith. This is stuff happening real fast, and right on top of that is the, is the fact that his contract was going to be up. So what was going to happen? Uh, you know, this had to be cleared up. You know, he can't be. He he definitely had uh, arguments going with Bob Keane about it about what's going on with with my career. You know, uh, uh, you can't be doing this right now. I mean, we've got to plan this thing out and that thing out. Uh, That's where everything starts to come to a head. Bobby Fuller went to Bob Keene's office. He went in, was very stormy about things. He came back out. The band wasn't really talking to him and so on. They didn't like this whole privacy element again. You know, it was like different things going on. Uh, being left a bit in the dark about what was going on. So Bobby felt that Bob Keene was keeping him in the dark and the rest of the band felt like Bobby was keeping them in the dark. Everyone's unhappy. That's right. That's right. We had had a meeting and uh, and we the band had broke up. Drummer Dalton Powell. Jim Reese had his, uh, got his draft notice, our guitar player, and uh, Bobby just decided he didn't like what was happening as far as his music and the management went. So he was just kind of, wanted to get off on his own for a while. And uh, he had, had told Jim and me and probably Randall about it. And uh, so 
As far as we were concerned, the band was pretty much over anyway. On top of everything else, the Rolling Stones were in Los Angeles recording, and bands like the Yardbirds, with a more psychedelic sound, were rising in popularity. The Bobby Fuller Four, with their clean-cut look and meticulously styled hair, didn't have the same appeal they'd had even the year before. California is is absolutely being overrun by super talented people making unbelievable records that would last through all eternity as great records alongside Bobby's great sound. It was almost like all of the different aspects were colliding and he was alone. In, In my mind at that time that he's trying to settle all of this in in his mind and make things happen his way. It was a clash. Bob Keane, he owns the label. He had you under contract. He feels that he did a lot for you. And what, you're going to walk now? Really? You know, and uh, don't you appreciate me? I mean, you can understand that, uh, that things could get rather heated. And I'm sure Bobby was was furious and angry and uh, upset about things. And so was Bob Keane on his end. Randall was also. And so were Bobby's parents. They knew that there was something really, really troubling their son. On the evening of Sunday, July 17th, 1966, Bobby was at home at the apartment on Sycamore Avenue. His mother was home too. Randall had gone out for the night. The whole band had an appointment to meet at Bob Keene's office at 9.30 the next morning to discuss their future. So that night, Bobby gets a phone call. Uh, It's late. His mom is still up. Hears him go out. Doesn't really know what's going on. Thinks that just assumes that he's going out for, you know, get a can of pop or something from a store nearby or something like that. But he's gone. And uh, in the morning, she goes to look out the back window, wondering, where is Bobby? Did he go out early this morning again or whatnot? And um, the car was not there. Her blue Oldsmobile was gone. She said she was sure. But then, she said sometime later, the car was back. And the, the length of time between when she saw that the car wasn't there and when the car was there is debatable, at least a few hours. But then she looked out, she saw the car, she ran out to the car to see what the heck was going on there. And um, there was her son. And uh, he had uh, appeared to have been beaten. Uh, There was a strong odor of gasoline through the car. There was a can of gasoline uh, that was in the front seat area. He was slumped over, uh, and his face and skin uh, appeared to be bruised and broken. Uh, He was still wearing slippers, uh, which appeared to be dragged in some kind of a way because they were damaged. Uh, the police arrive, Bob Keene arrives, the band members come circling. There's a you know big crowd. Oh my gosh, Bobby Fuller, he's dead. And there starts the really curious part of the story. Dalton Powell, along with the rest of the band, 
showed up at Bob Keene's office for the 9.30 meeting. But Bobby wasn't there. Bob Keene reportedly made a joke about the prima donna being late, and they rescheduled the meeting for 3.30. Bobby still didn't show up. So Dalton says they all left, and that he and Jim Reese walked over to Bobby's. And we saw his mom coming down the sidewalk the other way. And uh, we met her right in front of their apartment, and she was hysterical. So Jim took her on up to their apartment, and I went over to his mom's car to see what the hell was wrong. And that's when I looked in there, and I saw Bobby stretched out across the front seat. And his head was uh, under the steering wheel, and his clothes were disheveled, and there was a can of gasoline on the floor, in the front of the car. There's several ideas about what that was about. I have no idea. You know, I, I know back in the early days, some of the, the kids used to sniff gasoline to get high. And uh, somebody tried to say that's what he was doing. Just bull crap, you know. Bobby didn't do that. Bobby didn't really do drugs either. And uh, if you were a rock and roll musician, you didn't have to sniff gasoline to get high. <laughs> he could have got any kind of drugs he wanted. There was no reason for him to sit in his car at night and sniff gasoline. So that was one rumor that was totally ridiculous. And uh, the police didn't even really look into it. Unfortunately, what was happening at that very time uh, is that uh, Police Chief Parker, who had been the chief of police for decades, had suddenly died of a heart attack, coronary, uh, and all of the entire Los Angeles police force was thinking about one thing. They'd lost their chief at a funeral what was, was, was in the offing. This happened, it was one day apart with what happened with Bobby. So when people are talking about, like, oh, why didn't they investigate? You know, it was bad timing. People were distracted. Yes, people were distracted. I think the police department was distracted. The circumstances were so strange that uh, just nothing really made any sense. Support for Criminal comes from Seed Health. Seed Health's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic gives your body what it needs when it needs it. Supporting your gut health can be a pretty great starting point for supporting your overall health. That means getting plenty of prebiotics and probiotics. A symbiotic like Seed is a combination of both. Seed helps you create a healthy microbial environment in your gut. And not only will your gut feel it, but the rest of your body too. It promotes clearer skin, good cardiovascular health, and helps you maintain healthy blood cholesterol levels. I've been taking two a day, and just last week, someone told me my skin looked really great. Trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com criminal and use code 25criminal to get 25% off your first month. 
That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash criminal with code 25criminal. The last person who claimed to see Bobby Fuller alive was his apartment building superintendent, who said they were drinking beer late at night and that Bobby was in good spirits. He was found dead late in the afternoon the next day, July 18, 1966, in his mother's Oldsmobile, covered in gasoline. He was 23. The Associated Press reported that police said a can of gasoline and a plastic hose were found on the car seat, but the cause of death was listed as undetermined pending an autopsy. His mother said that her son had been depressed. The Los Angeles Times implied that Bobby Fuller had died by suicide. A friend of Bobby's said that the police, quote, didn't seal the scene off, didn't use police tape, didn't take fingerprints, didn't look for evidence, didn't do a thing except say, get the hell out of here. Someone claimed they saw a plainclothes police officer take the gas can from the Oldsmobile and throw it away. There were conflicting reports about whether the keys were in the ignition. The autopsy report said they were not there, but Bobby's mother swore that they were. The medical examiner wrote a question mark next to the box that read suicide, and he also wrote a question mark next to the box that read accident. Blood tests concluded that Bobby Fuller was not on drugs, and no alcohol was detected. The official cause of death is listed as asphyxiation from inhalation of gasoline. You know, that coroner's report clearly shows that there was something abnormal that happened to kill this young man. There have been many theories over the years. Very few people who knew him believe that Bobby Fuller died by suicide. Bob Keene said he'd seen Bobby the day before, cheerful. Randall Fuller said that Bobby was excited about the prospect of going solo and seeing what was next. He was also excited about a Corvette he'd arranged to buy. Someone said Bobby told them he was going out to buy LSD that night and that perhaps if he was on drugs, he might have gotten confused and tried to drink gasoline. Others said no, that Bobby didn't like LSD and that the LSD theory wouldn't explain why it seemed like he'd been beaten up. His chest and shoulders were bruised. Someone said the index finger on his right hand looked like it had been bent backwards and broken. There was a rumor that Bob Keene had an $800,000 life insurance policy on Bobby Fuller. That was never proven. People said it could have been Charles Manson. But Charles Manson was in prison in 1966. There were rumors that it was a romantic relationship gone wrong. People even said that Bobby Fuller shouldn't have been hanging around with Nancy Sinatra. He and his band had been in a movie with her called The Ghost in the Invisible Bikini, and that Frank Sinatra didn't like it. Someone joked the Beatles did it. Over the years, um, some of the band members have been accused. What do you make of that? I mean, speculated. What What do you make of that? No, that's ridiculous. Uh, we were harmless. We were a bunch of kids playing rock and roll music. We were harmless. Many, many efforts have been made 
to solve the case from all different angles. There's been no proof. And unfortunately, all of the records referring to this case in Los Angeles vanished years ago. There are no files for Bobby Fuller. Many people believe that the reason the investigation never went anywhere was because the mob was involved. Miriam Linna says it's an important detail that Bobby chose to leave the apartment in the early morning hours, in his slippers. I, why did he go that night? We don't know. Incidentally, that can of gas was not something that was brought in there to force him to drink or anything because, you know, the situation was that that can of gasoline was in the car because the gas gauge on the mom's car was broken. And they always had a can of gas in the back of the car in case they ran out of gas because the gauge didn't work, you know. Uh, and the coroner's report says that the, that the body had apparently been in the car, you know, on, on a very, very hot California morning and afternoon. I had been in there for hours. This, this causes me again, and every time I think about it, to wonder, was Mrs. Fuller mistaken? That first time she looked out the window and said the car was missing. Because, you know, to try to make that fit, you've got, you've got a car that's there. <laughs> then it's gone, and then it's back again. And the degree of rapid decomposition that had already occurred on Bobby uh, indicates that he had been in that car there for quite a long time. And the coroner's report says that his lungs smelled strongly of gasoline and so did his internal organs. And this all indicates a certain passage of time for that to have happened. That's where the real puzzle comes in. Not only the question about who done it, but the question of how did this all transpire in that period of time? Now you want to know who I, what I think? I was just going to ask, what do you think happened? <laughs> well, you know, I don't mean to laugh about Bobby because I, I, I love his music very sincerely and I feel almost that he's part of my DNA at this point in time. But what I, I believe happened, and without mentioning names uh, again, although we've gone through a, a couple of names, uh, I believe that he was being pressured. Now, uh, my belief is that the pressure was about signing with a, a new entity, or maybe somebody was vengeful, uh, jealous. He knew them because he went. I think that it was um, intended as a threat. I think it was to show him, hey, look, you can't do this kind of a stuff. Smarten up. Scare him. Scare tactics. But the scare tactics went wrong. And uh, when you've got your windows rolled up and you're in the car and you pass out and there's gas in the car, uh, things can happen. He was definitely um, more than just a little roughed up as well, you know, uh, but um, I don't think that, that they intended to kill him. If they had, why would they bring it? Why would they endanger themselves to bring the car back into the lot? 
it just doesn't it doesn't make sense. So much of it doesn't make sense. So you think someone maybe called him to draw him away from home late at night. Right. And he right. knew them. And so that's why he went, um, a colleague yeah. or a woman maybe. And yeah. he gets there. The, they put the pressure on him. It, it might have been a ruse to get him there. They beat him up maybe more than they thought they had planned to. That's why he's yeah. bruised. And yeah. the injuries in some way and the gasoline fumes in the car, it all leads to his death. Right. Whether he was able to drive home or not is still something that I can't wrap my head around. Uh, the suggestion is, and there's someone has said, there was one report or maybe two at the time that was never seriously taken into consideration that someone was seen leaving the uh, area of the car before Mrs. Fuller spotted the car. And if that was the case then maybe somebody drove it back and positioned him in that way. I mean, it's it's out there. It is out there. Do you think someone out there knows something and may come forward? Definitely. I absolutely think so. I absolutely think so. I mean, there's people to this day who uh, believe that they know, but they won't come forward and say, it boils down to hearsay, and it boils down to, hey, that was a long time ago. But I believe that it will happen. I honestly believe that. Bob Keane died in 2009. Morris Levy of Roulette Records died in 1990. Many of the musicians Bobby worked with have died. Randall Fuller declined to talk with us. In the past, he's told reporters that he didn't feel comfortable talking about his brother's death. If it was foul play, he told the El Paso Times, then the guy who did it is still running loose. I don't know. To tell you the truth, I think it was an accident. I think uh, somebody accidentally killed him and staged uh, a little scene there that uh, didn't really work very well, but my opinion is that somebody accidentally killed him and just... I don't think it was an intentional murder for any any financial gain or anything like that. I just don't believe it was. I think it was an accident. Could have been anybody. So we may never know what happened. What's your life like now? How, how are you? Do you still play the drums? No, I. I got a little bit old for that. I still play them. I just don't pack them up and move them anymore. <laughs> but I kind of outgrew that. But if there's a set around somewhere, I'll bang on them a little bit. Today, when you're in a store or watching a movie or driving in your car, wherever it might be, and you hear, I fought the law or letter dance, what does that feel like? Oh, you know, it's always kind of a little warm, fuzzy feeling in there, but... You know, it's been so long that I really just don't even think about it anymore. You know, it's just, it impresses me that uh, people still want to hear the old song after all these years. <laughs> you know, mo most of the kids nowadays that have no idea who Bobby Fuller is, but if you say, I fought the law, they say, oh yeah, everybody's heard the song, they just don't know who did it. 
In the spring of 1966, Bobby and Randall Fuller were interviewed in a magazine called Hit Parader. Bobby would die a few months later that July. He tells the interviewer that he'd like to visit Hawaii. He says, I'd like to conduct a symphony just one time, like the William Tell Overture. I like Stravinsky, Maurice Ravel's Bolero. When I hear that, I go in another room and try to add to it. He said his fans range in age from 13 to 30 years old. He said, no matter how old they are, they all react the same. In Los Angeles, he said, they're getting more excited. I'm getting more excited. We made a special playlist featuring music discussed in this episode. You can find a link to it in the show notes. Criminal is created by Lauren Spohr and me. Nadia Wilson is our senior producer. Susanna Robertson is our producer. Audio mix by Rob Byers. Special thanks to Mike Arnold. Julian Alexander makes original illustrations for each episode of Criminal. You can see them at thisiscriminal.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Criminal Show. Mary M. Lynna's book about Bobby Fuller, written with Randall Fuller, is called I Fought the Law, The Life and Strange Death of Bobby Fuller. Criminal is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Radio Tokyo from PR.